This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Happy fall. Welcome to fall in Las Vegas. I, I didn't say this at the first service because my wife was here, but I'll say it now because she can't get mad at me. Just keep it to yourselves, okay? <laughs> she said, uh, one of the kids were like, hey, moms, when, when it's, when's it fall? And she's like, oh, it's not fall till October. I'm like, wrong. <laughs> fall technically already started. It's like September 20th. And she's like, I think it's October. I'm like, babe, don't. Don't push me on this, you know. It's my favorite season in Las Vegas. It had better be the end of September. So we looked it up. It's September 23rd. So welcome to fall in Las Vegas. I hope that you're enjoying it as much as I am. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. We study through the Bible here at Paradise Calvary Chapel. If you need a Bible, we're going to have somebody give one to you so that you can follow along with us. We're in Matthew chapter 3 this morning. That's the first book of the New Testament. And then before we get started, just a couple things that I wanted to bring to your attention. Thank you, Ronnie, for those wonderful announcements. I have nothing further to say. So um, about that, she's gone, so it doesn't matter. The men's breakfast yesterday morning went great. Um, for you men that weren't able to make it, it you know, next time you can you can come and join us. But... It was a blessing. It was the first time, actually, that we were able to have the men's breakfast here at the church because, um, long story, we weren't able to do it in the past, but we had it here at the church, and um, we even had a little a little group of homeless people that came over from Sunset Park that got to eat with us, and some of our, some of our people got to share with them and love on them, and that was really cool. So the men's breakfast was a blessing. Thank you guys for coming out and hanging out with each other, studying the Word with me. But tomorrow we are re-kicking off or starting for this fall season our men's Bible study. So if you're a man, you want to have some good fellowship, you want to hang out with some brothers in the Lord, Monday evenings at 5.30 here at the church, we're going to be redoing or starting our men's Bible study. So I'd like to encourage you and invite you to come to that. Love to have you. Today's message is entitled Triple Temptation, and it, and it goes along with our Forsaken Kingdom series. Just kind of a refresher of, of what that looks like. The Forsaken Kingdom series through the Gospel of Matthew is written by Matthew, who was a tax collector and had, for all intents and purposes, he had for, forsaken his kingdom. He had said that he would identify more closely with the Roman overseers of the nation of Israel at that time, then with his own country to the, to the degree that they hated him because of it. And this is how he made a living. But he saw the bigger picture in meeting somebody, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and realizing that it wasn't about the kingdom of Israel. It wasn't about the kingdom of Rome, but it was about the kingdom of God. And that Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God and that it had blown everybody's expectations out of the water. You guys realize that nobody but nobody saw what was coming when Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God. They didn't understand it. And for, to some degree, I think today for Christians, men and women in the church, I think that sometimes people still don't understand what the kingdom of God on earth is supposed to really look like. I'm not into having arguments about why certain countries aren't in the Bible in eschatology, end times, prophecies, or discussions. You know why? Because it doesn't matter. The point is none of those countries in the world are as, are as, as important as the kingdom of God coming from heaven to earth. The Son of God presenting to us His desire not just to be part of God's family adopted as orphans, but to be citizens in His kingdom. 
And if we ever take our citizenship on earth for whatever country we're a part of as more serious than our citizenship in heaven, than our citizenship of God's kingdom, we're in a bad place. You are going to be let down when your confidence is in any kingdom of this world, period. This Forsaken Kingdom series, again, just as a refresher, as we study through the gospel of Matthew over and over again, we see this theme of the kingdom of God. And even here, it comes up in this study as well that we're going to get to at our third point. But we're talking about the temptation of Jesus Christ this morning. And the title again is called Triple Temptation. The definition of temptation I'll throw it up on the screen for you if you, if you don't know it. It's the, the desire to do something, especially something wrong or unwise. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get into our study this morning. God, thank you that, that you have given us a holy calling. You've called us to be separate. You've called us to be different. You've placed the blood of your son over our lives and adopted us as your sons and daughters. And God, we want to make sure that we have the right perspective in life today, that we're reminded by the power of your word, living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, that, that we are yours and you are ours, and that we have this higher calling according to the kingdom, your kingdom, your family that you've called us to be a part of. And, and God, we pray that you'd give us wisdom as we walk in that and, and that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, through your scriptures today. Father, I thank you for that time of worship that we don't have a bunch of performers up here for a show, but that we can all engage in offering you the fruit of our lips as an act of worship towards you worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Also, God, the studying and application of your word. We don't do it for anything other than, we shouldn't do it for anything other than, than submission to you and, and worship towards you. The same with our tithes and offerings, God. We, we don't want them to be compulsory. We want them to be made in an act of worship. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen temptation. Have you guys ever been tempted before? No, you guys are good. I asked people in the first service a specific question about temptation and three people raised their hand. I'm not going to ask for hand, uh, hands to be raised because you guys are even better than they are. I know it. I'm tempted on a regular basis and there's three ways that I can recognize in my life that God is bringing me through something, trying to teach me something. And I try whenever I'm going through hardship or difficulty or whatever kind of season I'm in, I try to identify whether it's one of these three things so that I can be well calibrated going in the right direction. Number one, is it my flesh? Is it the flesh that has appetites and that is pushing me in some direction? Is it, is it influencing me? Number two, is it God disciplining me? Is it him testing me? Not because he doesn't know where I stand on certain issues, but because he needs me to know where I really stand on certain issues. I, I say things or I do things that, that may be contrary to what I say I really believe, and then God brings me into a place of like, no, this is who you really are, Tim. And then also we go through spiritual warfare, which I would like to say, and I've defined kind of for us as otherworldly influence the prince of the power of the air. There's these influences in our life, and we've talked about how the things that you let into your head, the things that you listen to, the things that you watch, the things that you give yourself over to influence you in a certain direction. And sometimes it's not the spirit of God influencing you in a direction. It's, a, it's another kind of spirit that we need to be aware of. We can identify those three things. We're going to talk about three ways that Jesus was tempted this morning, and then we're going to also break those down and, and try to apply them to our own lives. But I wanted to share with you a story before we get into the Word. 
about my great time, my blessed time in Israel a couple weeks ago. <laughs> Some people say I talk about it too much. I say, you don't talk about it enough. Maybe you should go to Israel. So there's a sign-up sheet at the information station for you to come to Israel with us next year because it's amazing. So I had a great day. It was a good day. And I was coming back to the hotel. We had been to the Jordan River. We had baptized people in our group. There was these other people that came from another group that said, hey, we're on a tour group, but we don't have any pastors and we want to get baptized. Would you guys baptize? We just saw God doing incredible things and it was an awesome time. And we get back to the hotel and kind of just excited about what God had done that day. And I'm walking up to my room and I walk over to the elevator and I go to push the button for the elevator. And some guy grabs my finger and squeezes it. And I looked at him and he's still holding on to my finger. And he had a name tag on. He was with a different tour company. I didn't know who he was. But he had a name tag on. And I said, Gary, get your hands off of me. <laughs> Gary, get your hands off of me. Why are you holding on to my finger? I was tempted. He was pushing my buttons, and all I was trying to do was push a button. And he said, you know, I already pushed the button, and we're waiting for the elevator. We don't need anybody else coming up here and pushing the button. And then it ran through my head. I thought, oh, how quickly, how quickly the enemy wants to take something that God was doing good and, and, and tempt you to to respond in the flesh and to do something evil. And the door opened and Gary and his wife got in the elevator. And I thought to myself, maybe I should wait for the next elevator. But if you know me at all, I said, no. <laughs> I'm getting in this. And I got in and I pressed him up against the wall, flexed on him. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. <laughs> I just got in the elevator, but we were standing next to each other. And his wife was grumbling something under her breath, and we went up, and I got out, and I walked down to, the, to my room. And again, I was just thinking about how the enemy just wants friction, and he wants to rob the good things that God intends for us in life. We all go through seasons. It's very important for us to recognize those seasons that God is bringing us through so that we can really fully engage him in that season. And the enemy wants us to kind of check out. And God says, these are the things that I have for you. These are the ways that I want you to grow. This is how you can be connected to my body and serving in my body. And you're not even serving them, you're serving me so that you can receive and understand what abundance of life looks like. And the enemy comes in and tries to influence us in a different direction. And then the next day, the morning, six o'clock, I went down for breakfast to get my morning coffee. And I was, got in the elevator, went down, walked out to go toward the restaurant. I step out, and who's trying to get in the elevator? Gary. I said, Gary, good morning. How are you doing? How'd you sleep? He said, good. And I just wanted to apologize about what happened yesterday. People were pushing me around all day. I was in a bad mood, and I'm sorry that that happened. I said, you know what? Don't worry about it. I get it. I hope that you have a blessed day and that you, wherever you guys are going next, that it's awesome. He said, thanks. You too. And I just thought how sweet it is, how good it is when, when brethren dwell together in unity. But what the enemy tries to come and do, he tries to create disunity among the brethren, among the sistren. He tries to pit us against each other. And Jesus himself said, there's one way there's one thing special about you guys that I'm calling you to, John chapter 15, that they will know you by. What did Jesus say? They will know you by what, church? Your love for one another. And how easy it is to lose sight of that divine command calling of Jesus himself to love each other no matter how we feel. Oh, because how I treat people should definitely be filtered through based on how I feel that day, right? No, it should be based on what I know, what I understand to be true. Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13, we see, and I included this with the temptation because uh, it does 
finish a chapter and start anew. But with the, the continuity and the flow, I think it's important to see the baptism of Jesus Christ and what its significance is into the temptation instead of taking a break between the two. So this is where we start in chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. You know, John the baptizer is baptizing people at the Jordan. He just rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath. And then here we see cut scene. Jesus is now coming to the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Now, if you remember with me, just a few verses before how we finished last week, John the baptizer just got done saying that the one who was coming after him, he wasn't even worthy to untie his sandal and that he was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And the next thing we see is Jesus Christ coming on scene to be baptized by him. And he says, no, I can't. There's no way that this is, this is the way that it's supposed to be. I should be getting baptized by you. You and I both understand through scriptures that the John the baptizer's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Repentance. And the question would be, what did Jesus have to repent of? Well, I'll tell you, spoiler alert, nothing. Jesus was sinless. He didn't have anything to repent of. But what Jesus said is, he says, so that it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, I want to do this thing. See, Jesus didn't want anybody to have any ammunition against him by saying, you can't identify with me in my weaknesses because you didn't go through this thing that we all went through. Well, Jesus said, for the sake of fulfilling the entirety of what I came here to do, he starts the, the first act, the beginning of his public ministry, is to identify with man in his sinful condition. That's what they're doing there, right? They're confessing sin. And Jesus is not only identifying with man in the sinful condition, but he's starting this new season of life that the Father has ordained for him to reveal his kingdom, his will, and his purpose through his son. So I have no problem with that. I have no problem with Jesus saying, I want to be identified with you people by this act. Verse 16, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. <clears throat> really the, the heart of the act of Jesus being baptized is connected to the foundation that I believe runs throughout all scripture, particularly when it comes to the son. But, but the, the act that Jesus did through this baptism and that is continually seen over and over again in his, is his absolute submission and obedience to the Father. There's no argument. God, I don't need to be baptized. What are you talking about? No, he, he was willing to do everything necessary in that season that God had called him to. And I'll say this, you know, it's not the most comfortable thing to confess or admit, but are we really willing to do or go through whatever God has called us to in this season? Seasons, yeah, we have two in Las Vegas. Most people in the world have four. We have two. And, and, through this transition, they go back and forth. Like this week, it is fall. Next week, it'll be summer again and vice versa until it just gets cold. But the, but the thing that we need to really hold on to is that, that God is faithful to bring us into new seasons. And, and that's good. And, and we have to be in a place of recognizing going into new seasons that, that not only do we want to be there, but we want to be submitted to God in every way possible that we can through that season so that we can learn the most that we can 
we can identify more with Christ. We can identify more with his will for our lives. Do you want to? I want to. I don't want to start to live for my own kingdom again. That's a messy, nasty place. But his kingdom and his righteousness, all those are good. That is good. Then we go into the temptation. Chapter four, starting in verse one. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. How was that? Jesus said, I'm the son of God, and I'm going to prove to y'all that I'm the best in the world. I'm going to go be tempted by Satan. Is that what he said? No. He's like, this devil guy ain't got nothing on me, and watch y'all how I'm going to show him what's up. No. Why did he go into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy? Because the spirit led him there. And you may find as well in your life very often that the spirit is leading you into difficult situations so that your faith can be proven. You know, there's some theologians and scholars that will argue that this shouldn't be considered the temptation of Christ. But it should be the testing of God. I would submit to you this morning that it's both. That it is the temptation of Jesus Christ through the enemy, but it's also the proving, which is what testing is. It's the proving of who Jesus Christ is and his character. And the same happens for us. Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he had, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now, I, I think it's interesting that the fact that he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, kind of similar to connected to the, the children of Israel in the Old Testament who wandered through the wilderness for how long, church? 40 years and were tested before entering the promised land. And Hebrews said they could not enter into the rest of God because they rejected it. So we were down at the Jordan this trip in Israel. We didn't go to the Jordan River last year, but this year we wanted to make sure that we went down to the Jordan and we drove past Jericho and we went down to the Jordan in the area where John the baptizer would have been where Jesus would have been baptized which is pretty cool. Now, it's not the same as it was thousands of years ago, but this is the area that Jesus was. And we walked down and we saw these people getting baptized in the Jordan. And along the banks of the Jordan, it was lush and green and beautiful. And you had all these people there and it was a sight to behold. But then when you walk away, when you turn around and walk away and go back to where the tour buses were, there's a stark contrast to that beauty by the river and you face yourself as you're walking. I was walking down toward the buses this way and then right to my left, there's just a vast wilderness of nothing right there. And, and this is what I did for you guys because I love you. If you're not coming into Israel next year, I took a picture for you. And I took this picture to show you. In this picture, I'm walking back to the tour bus and like I said, behind me is the River Jordan with the trees on its shore and this is what Jesus would have seen as he was walking away. If you look up this way, that would be the direction where Jericho was. And that's the wilderness that he went into for 40 days and 40 nights. If you, can you read that sign? What does it say? Danger mines. Do you know what that sign really says? It says, do not cross this point because if you do, you can be blown to kingdom come. <laughs> Literally. Because the conflict that happened between the nation of Israel and its neighbors has, has turned this wilderness into a no man's land. And, and uh, it's interesting that, that we could say that Jesus in going into the wilderness to be tempted was literally going into a minefield. He was going in to be challenged in three ways that we're going to look at this morning and that we can identify three ways that we are tempted and challenged in our lives today as well. Number one, he was, after fasting for 40 days, he was hungry. If you don't know this, you can fast for a long time. You can't go without water for a long time. So Jesus was, uh, had no food for 40 days. Some people say it's supernatural. There have been cases documented where people can do this and live without food. It's absolutely, absolutely possible. You can't live without water. You can't live without air, but you can live without food. 
Some of you may think, oh, no, you can't. Now, I asked for hands to raise in the first service. I'm not going to ask you to. Just think, how many of you have have, uh, fasted for one day before, 24 hours? How many of you have fasted for two days? How many of you fasted for three days? How many of you have fasted for a week? Well, you know that if you fasted for anything longer than three days, and this comes from personal experience as well, I'll tell you, I just lost my treasure in heaven to illustrate this for you, that after three days, you kind of start to lose hunger. Well, you do lose the sense of hunger. You're not hungry anymore. And you just kind of, you're, you're okay, you can't eat, you don't have to, it's not that big of a deal. But as the time goes by, when you start to get to whatever the point is for your body, 40 days or right in that range, that vicinity, the time that, or the point where your body starts to tell you that it's hungry is the point where your body's starting to shut down because it's starving to death. So notice this, your body's smart and it's like, this is your last chance, bro. (laughs) This is your last chance, lady. You better eat something. We're running on critical right now. And keep that in mind as the first temptation comes from the enemy, it's in the weakest point that Jesus can be in that moment. And it's in that weakest point as well that we need to be that we need to be able to identify when the enemy's trying to come in and mess stuff up because he always seems to be right on cue. He does. And he doesn't come against you in things that don't matter to you, right? He doesn't. He doesn't say, hey, what about this? What about that? And you're like, who cares about those things? I never cared about those things. He knows the things that he can press. He knows that you don't like it when strangers grab your finger and clench it and don't let go. He knows that. So he's going to wait for the perfect time to do it, to see if he can get a reaction, to see if the temptation will have any effect on you. Now, number one, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus was tempted in one of the most simple temptations that we can even experience today. Okay, maybe you're not going to go to the, to the degree of 40 days, but you can do a meal. You can do a day or two or three. And you tell me how easy it is to deny the flesh its appetite. You tell me. When was the last time you fasted? <laughs> was it easy? You know, they didn't come up with the word hangry for no reason. The word hangry is your flesh telling you that you had better do what it says. Otherwise, it's going to change your whole perspective on what the day looks like. Isn't that interesting? It's your flesh dictating to you that if you don't do what it says, then you're going to be in trouble. And you can even apologize for it. Listen, you know it too. You can apologize for it and people will understand you. Like, I'm sorry, I'm just hangry. I get it, brother. I get it. Just go have a taco real quick. You'll be fine. No, listen, listen. The easiest way, people ask me, how do I crucify the flesh? One of the easiest ways to exercise crucifying the flesh is to fast from a meal or two. And instead of stuffing your face with tacos, spend some time in prayer. Meditation, reading the word, seeking the Lord, and don't allow the flesh to change your perspective in in what that day would look like. Allow the spirit in crucifying the flesh to give you clarity in things that the Lord may be leading you in. And if you don't think or believe that that's a spiritual truth that's very profound at its core, just go ahead and try it. Because it's very simple It's very easy, and we don't even have to. I was talking to a brother once who was fasting, and I asked him the wrong question. I said, what are you fasting for? 
but it was the right question because he gave me insight that I've carried with me to this day. He said, I'm not fasting for anything. I'm fasting to let my flesh know who's in charge. I'm not seeking God for God. I need an answer in this thing. I need help in this way. And I need that for this. And I ask for this. He said, I'm just doing it to let the flesh know that it doesn't control me. It's not in, it's not in charge of me and that I'm the one that tells it what to do. You know, one of the verses in the New Testament that I so can identify with in our, in our current world, and especially in the United States, their gods are their bellies. What is my belly telling me to do? What do I want to eat today? How do I get some kind of consumer satisfaction? It's easy. Crucify the flesh. Deny the flesh. And you know, as well as I do, it may not be food. It could be the pleasures of the flesh. It could be things that, that you've done for the last 10, 15, 20 years. And for some reason now, maybe it's not even wrong, but why not push back a little bit and see how the flesh reacts and know that it's going to react. Your me time. You guys have me time? Me time. I just need me time. Well, you know, how about you just fast from me time for a little bit? that TV show, that, that video game, whatever it is, let the flesh know, whatever comfort that it brings you, that it's not in charge. Jesus denied the temptation and his response was, according to the word of God, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, what's more important, and I, man, I wish I could have this perspective more than I really do, if I'm honest with you. I wish I can have the perspective more that what God has to speak today is more important to me than what I put in my mouth. Because that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm not looking necessarily for some kind of sustenance or satisfaction in what I can eat, but I'm so hearing from my Father what he has for me today. And then it makes sense later when Jesus says, I don't say things that I think up. I don't speak things to you that that's my opinion. The only things I say to you is what the Father has told me to say to you. Yeah, I get it. He's the Son of God. He can say that. But to what degree can we say? God, give me something to speak to my brothers and sisters today. Give me a way that I can encourage somebody, that I can bless somebody, that I can love somebody, and, make, and help me to stop thinking about what I'm going to eat for lunch. Do you guys think what you're going to eat for lunch? I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat lunch on Friday. And the only reason that I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat for lunch on Friday, on Sunday, is because I've already planned out Monday through Thursday. I like to eat. The flesh likes to tell me that it's in charge. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, it says, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace, in, uh, grace to help in time of need. Jesus was tempted in all ways, even when it came to the appetites of the flesh, right? Even when it came to the appetites of the flesh, 40 days, body shutting down, verge of starvation. And he says, the word of God is more important than feeding this earthly tent. James chapter one, I'm just gonna read these verses and we can move on, but we have them up here for you. James chapter one, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. There's the process of giving into the temptation of the flesh. Lust of the flesh would be number one in the first temptation. We can see the pride of life in the second, verse four. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not uh, live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city 
set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. I would like to take note, I didn't on the first temptation, but I would on the second. He continues to say, if you are the son of God. Some scholars believe that it says, since you are the son of God. That word could be translated either way. But I'll say to you, I'll say with that in mind, that it doesn't really matter. The point is, (laughs) the point is he's tempting, he's challenging Jesus's position as God's son one way or the other. Do you know that you are a son and daughter of God if you've identified with Jesus Christ as your personal savior? And and for the most part, when the enemy comes in to challenge you, that's the essence of what he's challenging? Your identity in Christ? You've been adopted as a son and a daughter into the family of God? And now Satan tries to throw Jesus a curveball by quoting scripture himself. Is that what he's really trying to do? I don't know, but it's just, it's funny to me. He quotes scripture to Jesus and know this, whenever the devil quotes scripture, he's never going to do it to reveal God's truth to you. (laughs) He's going to do it to manipulate the word of God, to get you to do something that's contrary to God's will and in line with his will. In fact, we have this verse broken down. The response Jesus has is uh, the quote, the, ver- the quote that he's quoting Satan is in Psalm 91. And I have it up here on the screen for you so that we can break it down. Satan just picks and chooses what he wants to say. He leaves out part of these verses and you can see why. For he shall give his angels charge over you, comma, to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample underfoot. I wonder why Satan didn't quote all of that. I wonder why he cut out the first part. So he shall give his angels charge over you, comma, to keep you in all of your ways. That's the part that he cut out, the first part that he cut out. Why would he cut that out? Because the promise of God to anybody who would receive that promise, particularly to Jesus, is that he would keep Jesus in the way that he was called to go. Recognizing his calling, recognizing his position, and Satan doesn't want to shed any light on that for him, for you, or for I. He just wants you to focus on the negative side of it, the challenging question. And this goes back to the beginning. You guys know this. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Eve. Did God really say? Satan is always looking to challenge and push against what God's word says. And then it's easy to see why he left out the last part. Do you see why? It's easy to see why he said, you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent, you shall trample underfoot. What are two ways that Jesus is described in the scripture? Two, two characters that, that he, he can be connected to. The lion who seeks to devour. Behold, the lion, Satan, goes around the whole world seeking whom he can devour. And the serpent, Revelation says that, that serpent, that dragon of old. What's going to happen to him? Do you guys know what's going to happen to the serpent? You're going to trample underfoot. It's not a good thing to remind somebody of. If Satan's bringing a verse to you, he's not going to remind you the promises of God that come against him when he's trying to twist the truth of God to get you to do something in temptation that you shouldn't be doing. Jesus' response is with the word of God in truth. He doesn't even challenge the fact that he misquotes the verse But he said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. When it comes to temptation, I think you and I understand what temptation towards God looks like for us is us challenging God's position towards us. That's what temptation looks like. In fact, we saw it with the children of Israel in the desert when they're going through the wilderness. They're crying out, Oh God, you brought us away from Egypt out here in the desert to kill us, to die. Can anybody identify with that statement? Have you ever said that to God before? I've said it. God, you truly, on the mission field in Eastern Europe for 10 years, God, you truly brought me out here to kill me, thanks a lot. 
And what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm challenging what he said his perfect will was for me. What happened when they challenged him in the desert and said to him, you brought us out here to die and they tempted him to respond. What did he do? He sent snakes into the camp. The serpent, the deceiver, they were tricked. And he says, if this is what you sown, this is what you're going to reap. If you want to give yourself over to temptation, not trusting what my perfect will is for you, and here's the authority that you want to be under. But, but, the story doesn't end there. Thank God. But what happens is he then tells Moses, erect this on a pole, this bronze serpent, and inform the people that if anybody looks upon the serpent, they would be spared, they would be saved, and they would not die from the snake bite. We can be tempted. There's like two of you, thank you for raising your hand and saying that you've cried out to God, why did you let us die too? Because honestly, we challenge God from time to time and when we know that we shouldn't. But by the grace of God, he continues to give us salvation, <laughs> to save us from ourselves, to help us through those seasons where we can't see the big picture and we're struggling to know that he knows and there's, where there's repentance, there's forgiveness. It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Verse 8, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now, that last temptation might be a little obscure, but I'd like to bring some light to it. Take it at face value as we can see. Basically, we are tying into our Forsaking Kingdom series right here, right? We're, we're talking about the kingdom of God. We're talking about the difference between our kingdoms, my own personal kingdom, God's kingdom, my will, God's will. How do I work through that? How do I identify what is God bringing me through something? And what's the flesh trying to hold me back from God? All of those things that we've been talking about in our Forsaken Kingdom series. But this is what I'd like to submit to you. Satan is saying to Jesus. Satan is, uh, in essence, saying, I'm going to give you a shortcut to inherit the kingdom without having to go through all the things that you know you're going to have to go through to get there. You're not going to have to suffer. You're not going to have to be rejected. You're not going to have to lose all your friends. You're not going to have to be tortured. You're not going to have to be beaten. You're not going to have to carry a cross bleeding to death. I offer you now the kingdoms of this world. You can forego the plan of God and I will give you the thing that you're meant to have, the kingdom, apart from all the suffering. That's what he was offering him. And even Jesus, we can see in his humanity to some degree, desired that, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he goes to the cross, he's weeping. He's saying, Father, if there's any other way, there's not any other way. Jesus learned obedience, and he went through the whole process, not willing to take any shortcuts for his own benefits. And sometimes I'm challenged in the same way. Tim, you can get to here quicker. You can cut this. You can do that. You can manipulate this. You can work this out so you don't have to go through the amount of suffering that God wants you to go through. All you have to do is forsake his will for a little bit. But no, forsaking for a little bit is a turning away from entirely. Don't buy into the lies of the enemy don't buy into the temptation of trying to forego the suffering to get to a place where you think that you want to be when in reality, it was nothing, it looked nothing like that anyway. Like Jesus would give all that up for a temporary kingdom? 
right? That was only in that time-space continuum compartment. And instead, he gave it up for the glory of eternity, starting at that point, and all the people that would be ushered in through that process, you and I included sitting here this morning, because he says, I'm not going to take any shortcuts. I'm not giving into the temptation of the enemy. I'm standing on the word of God. And you could be confident in standing on in God's word that he's going to allow and, and determine the best for you in your life as you do. And when we give ourselves over to temptations, we thwart that plan to one degree or another. In God's faithfulness and his grace, he moves us along. But we do make mistakes. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 13 through 14. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. One of <laughs> the most misquoted verses in Corinthians. Well, God said that he's not going to tempt you with more than you're able to bear. No, that's not what the verse says. Actually, the verse says that he is going to tempt you, <laughs> or not God himself, but the enemy will tempt you with more than what you're able to bear. But God, but God, but God will give you a way of escape. He'll give you the provision that you need. And it's exactly what we see in this case with Jesus as well. Right after Jesus resists the devil, what does the devil do when Jesus resists him? He flees from him. That sounds familiar. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. And then the divine provision from God in verse 11, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. He's going to take care of us, but let's not be ignorant, friends, church, brothers, and sisters. Let's not be ignorant. We're not looking for the devil under every rock, but we are, we are wise to his schemes. We are aware, and then we can go back and we can look again. Is this my flesh that needs to be crucified? Is this the Lord that's trying to teach me a lesson? Is it the enemy trying to tempt me and influence me in the wrong direction? As you go through life on a daily basis, you can break it down to one of those three things. And maybe you're just in a good season and you don't know because you're being blessed right now. Good. But the next time it comes up, be ready to answer those questions. Number one, in closing, let's just go through these one last time. There's three kinds or types of temptation. Number one is the temptation of the flesh. And I want to encourage you, if you're a note taker, to, to jot down a few of these that you know, and maybe your wife knows or somebody close to you, but I want, to, I want you to jot them down and meditate on them today. What are some of the things that for you are a temptation of the flesh? Interestingly enough, since a few weeks ago, I see a lot of guys at Second Service that are not here at church. I wonder why. Anybody smell what I'm cooking? There's football season. You know, my team plays. Hey, whatever. I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm just saying, what's the temptation of the flesh? Okay, that's the Holy Spirit, not me. Did you deal with it? <laughs> Number two, what's a temptation? The temptation to challenge God in the season that you're in. God, you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know what you, God knew what he was doing. Don't be dumb. God knew what he was doing. God knows where you're at. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he brings you through things to show you who you really are. The proving. Number three, it's a temptation through evil influence. This is one of those things like if you have kids that you say, hey, kids, trust me, don't do this because this is what's going to happen if you do. You know, and your kids are like, I'll show my mom. <laughs> I do whatever I want. I'm three. I do what I want. <laughs> See, mom, that's not going to happen to me. Oh, man, it happened. My mom knows things. 
The same way for us, know this, that that what you allow into your sphere of influence is going to affect you. The things that you listen to are going to affect you. The things that you watch are going to affect you. The things that you read are going to affect you. They're going to influence you in a direction that you have to take a hold of and say, I'm not going to allow this to have any more influence in my life. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word to us today. We don't want to be ignorant, thinking that everything is hunky-dory, fine butterflies and unicorns and rainbows, and the enemy has no reason to come against us. We don't want to be ignorant in that way, God. We want to understand and realize that we are a part of something, your kingdom come and your will be done. We are a part of something so much greater than we can even comprehend. We really cannot even wrap our heads around this morning the perfect plan and will of God that you have towards us as a church, corporately, and that you have towards us as individuals. Bless, Father, I pray. Bless my brothers and sisters this morning. Encourage them in your word, the application of your word. Bless the food that we're about to partake in, the love feast that we're going to have. (laughs) Father, thank you for those brothers and sisters who have at expense to themselves, whether it be time, financial, or whatnot, have, have brought food to break bread with their brothers and sisters here at church this morning. God, bless them. Bless our fellowship together, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.